Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very happy to have Peter Frischow on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Life and Death in the Third Reich, Nazis and Germans. These are two separate categories, but we tend to conflate them for the period 1933 to 1945 Peter investigates the degree to which this conflation is accurate or inaccurate. More particularly, he looks at the ways in which Germans accommodated the Nazi regime, that is, both its ideology and what it asked them to do. It's a very interesting book. I I really enjoyed talking to Peter today, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Peter. Hi, Marshall. How are you? I'm very well today. Thank you. Uh, It is rainy here in Iowa. How is it in Illinois? Well, we're going to get what you have. You're going to get what you you usually do. I mean, that should be be your uh, weather report every day. We're going to get what Iowa had. (laughs) So I should tell our listeners that we're talking to Peter Frischer today about his new book, Life and Death in the Third Reich. I've read it. I thought it was terrific. It was really eye-opening. It discusses aspects of uh, German and Nazi identity that I had never seen discussed uh, before in the vast literature. I thought there was nothing else to be said about this topic because you could fill libraries and libraries with what has been written about the Third Reich. But um, as I told Peter in the pre-interview, I started to read it just casually uh, one evening as I was going to bed. And then uh, all of a sudden it was well after midnight. And uh, because I was, there was really, there's really a lot of new and interesting things here about German identity during um, the period. So I encourage everybody to go out and buy the book. Um, Peter, why don't you begin by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Okay, well, um, I just turned 50, actually, and uh, um, just 50, returned. 50 yeah, is 50. the new 30. Well, I hope so. I just returned. Actually, what I, I gave myself a birthday present, and I went to Mount Kilimanjaro and mm-hmm. climbed it. Wow. And that was last, that was actually last week. Wow. So I've been a, a historian here at the University of Illinois for 22 years. Um, this is my first job, and um, I grew up in Chicago uh, on the south side where my father was a professor at the University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And um, I've actually always wanted to be a historian, mm-hmm. switched a little bit from historian to archaeologist, back to historian, but it's more or less the same thing. Always interested in time um, and to explain sort of the great transformations. Um, and uh, by the time I got to college, I went to the University of Pennsylvania. And by the time I got to college, I was a little more politicized. It was the late 1970s, and I ended up doing modern history. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I but I entered um, I entered Penn as an archaeology major, mm-hmm. and so um, I saw myself doing modern history. But since I knew German. Um, my French was okay, but my German was a lot better. Uh, I ended up becoming uh, a German historian mm-hmm. and um, have done a variety of things. I went to graduate school at uh, University of California, Berkeley, 
and then did a postdoc in Israel for a year. And really, I think there's been two um, directions in my work uh, since coming to Illinois uh, in 1987. And one is that I tried to analyze really what is a remarkable political revolution in modern times, which is uh, the rise of fascism and the rise of Nazism. One which is still a complicated, uh, in a way, it's a complicated um, political appearance because we normally think uh, of revolutions on the left. We think of uh, classes being crucial and uh, economic and social inequalities as being crucial and moving politics. And the Nazi revolution of 1933 really seems to challenge a lot of that. So it's not just a momentous revolution with tremendous um, consequences for the rest of Europe, but it's, it's an epistemological dilemma. And so um, I've worked on that in a variety of books that trace the rise of radical nationalist politics in Germany in the 20th century, uh, really at the local level, uh, finally culminating in this book, which is about um, how Germans experienced uh, the Third Reich uh, in the years 1933 uh, to 1945. So that's one trajectory. Uh, the other trajectory, though, is a much more cultural, historical one, in which um, I've taken themes that are not um, necessarily related uh, to the Nazis at all and are just, in a way, coincidentally part of, of Germany. So I've written on um, aviation and technology and sort of the nationalist imagination about gliders and zeppelins mm -hmm. and uh, just the role that aviation had in the German imagination in the first half of the 20th century. Um, I wrote a book about um, Berlin as a word city, a city of advertisements and texts and newspapers and how words fashioned the city and choreographed the city. Um, that was uh, Reading Berlin 1900. And then I wrote a book on the rise of um, historical consciousness and nostalgia at the turn of the 19th century. So this brought me onto a European stage, actually transatlantic stage, United States, Britain, France, Germany, and, um, and looking at how people thought about time, thought about history, um, thought about um, past, the passage of time. Mm -hmm. um, and that book was called Stranded in the Present, Modern Time uh, and the Melancholy of History. And that appeared in 2004. So now I'm back to the Nazis uh, with uh, Life and Death in the Third Reich. So I've always been you know, going from one the other trajectory and back mm -hmm, again. Mm -hmm. So how did you come to write this particular book? Well, I think, um, I think that the great challenge of uh, a modern historian is to think about uh, the, the, the complete epoch-making changes that have occurred in modernity. One of them is the French Revolution. Uh, and um, but also in the 20th century, you have the Russian Revolution, you have the Nazi Revolution. What did this mean? It was only 12 years long, the Third Reich, and yet it really upended our assumptions about how society works, about what was possible uh, in the middle of the 20th century. Um, it was a, a set of surprising events that overturned um, our sense of experience and predictability about how um, about how European society works. So one of the great surprises. One of, the, one of the things you find is you analyze how people are responding to events in 1933-45 is, is one of shock and surprise. 
And so this is a, it was a big in a way historiographical challenge, historiographical mystery. Um, that I had skirted. I'd done this, I'd done the rise of the Nazis 233, but, but the actual experience of the Third Reich and working up the Holocaust, I had not. So that really stood out as something I, I wanted to do. Um, the other reason is perhaps more personal. Um, my parents were born in Weimar, Germany, and my father also even served in the Wehrmacht, um, mm-hmm. was uh, drafted in 1945. And um, and then they left Germany in 1950 with, in the, with the Fulbright program, became American citizens. But really, all my cousins um, and other relatives are are German. Mm-hmm. And um, when they think about World War II uh, and the Nazis and the Third Reich, they come at it from a different perspective. My, mine had always been we Americans who won the war, thankfully. And yet, I knew that wasn't quite fair, uh, given who my parents were and, and who my, you know, the rest of my family were. And so I felt I, I really needed to um, write this book about, about the Third Reich and understand the uh, set of experiences um, that people had and, and how they were able to act and how they saw what was going on, what was their frameworks of analysis. Mm-hmm. Prior to writing the book, had you talked to your uh, parents about their experiences? I had. Um, you know, as a historian, you you come whenever you do oral history, even in a very informal way with your parents. Um, the historian constantly is interrupting the listener, need the listener, uh, and the witness to the um, testimonies of of contemporaries. And so, I think you quickly reach a limit about how you know you can listen to their stories, and they're often interesting. But in terms of a real dialogue, which is normally how you speak to your parents. Um, uh, this, this oral historical reminiscence uh, has real limits. So I had a sense of who they were and what their families were. My father came from a conservative family, for example. My mother came from a social democratic family, socialist family. So I kind of knew um, their basic dispositions and, uh, and some stories. But in the end, I think uh, they would find my book revealing and insightful in, in some respects. Um, uh, rather than that I would transport their stories into the book. Have they read it? Yeah. And what did they say? Oh, they liked it very much. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, beyond the uh, love for which all mothers and fathers have for the work of their sons. Well, I think, it's, you know, to some extent it's hard for them um, to, uh, to um, confront uh, an interpretation of Germany that, that is perhaps harder than than uh, one that they, they they might wish to read. I mean, mm-hmm. they don't they don't want to whitewash the German past, um, but they are both like many Germans, uh, especially, especially of their age, um, this, uh, people in their 60s and 70s, are committed to a, a good Germany, mm-hmm. however circumscribed it was. Mm-hmm. Um, a good Germany that can be now traced out in, in the Federal Republic and the Berlin Republic. My view is that that was much more qualified. Uh, between 1933 and 45, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that the good Germany was always implicated with the Nazi Germany mm-hmm. in in surprising ways. Uh, that's a nice segue to what I think is the uh, one of the main themes of the book, at least the first part of the book, and that is the relationship between German identity, circa let's say 1930, 33, and Nazi identity, and the way they 
negotiated with one another, the way they interacted. Um, this is obviously one of the oldest questions in the historical book, that is, to what extent were uh, Germans and Nazis the same category? We, we tend to conflate them, um, obviously erroneously, but I'd be uh, interested to hear you talk a little bit about how you investigated that question, particularly in the revolutionary era around 1933. Yeah, no, I think it is a very interesting question. Also, it depends on, on where you start and how you define things. If you think only in terms of who voted for the Nazi Party and who is a member of the Nazi Party, um, you find uh, a relatively circumscribed number of Germans would be Nazis with a big end before 1933. 37% voted uh, for the Nazis at the height uh, of the Weimar elections in 1932. Um, you know, several million were, were party members. But if you look at the, um, but that's the Nazis with a big N, the actual Nazi party. But if you, you step back and look at um, what were the cultural and political dispositions of Germans and how did those um, change over the course of the 1920s and the years since World War One, I, I would argue that you have um, proto-Nazi or national socialists with a small n, a small s, um, political tendencies that are bigger and broader than the Nazi Party, so that the Nazi Party is the largest but not the only player in a fascist field, and um, and that therefore, if you want to look at the origins of national socialism or fascism or radical nationalism in Germany, you have to go back. Um, you have to take groups other than the Nazis, and you have to go back to um, politics uh, before the Nazis, and you can't just look at where the Nazis are on the electoral map. They're very small, for example, in 1928, but there's a whole slew of other parties um, that are uh, anti-establishment, um, variously radical, um, that you could argue are sort of national socialists, small n, small s. And so the Nazis don't just begin uh, with the Great Depression in 1929 or 1930. Um, a national socialism as a phenomenon actually uh, starts earlier. And so it's not just so this began this suggested to me that one has to make a distinction um, between sort of Nazified attitudes on the one hand and the Nazi party on the other. Mm -hmm. And I argue then uh, in the post nineteen thirty three Third Reich period, that it's perfectly possible to dislike the Nazi Party. You don't like the bureaucrats, you don't like these new people coming in, telling everyone what to do. There is a certain degree of annoyance about this and about that. That shouldn't surprise us at all. That is not, but I don't think that necessarily makes you um, anti-Nazi. You may dislike the party, but you may have basically liked and supported the basic premises of the new era that comes uh, into being in, in 1933. Uh, and I put it very starkly in the book uh, that it's possible to, to hate the Nazis but love the Third Reich. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what were some of those, I'm sorry for interrupting, but what were some of those broad principles, perhaps somewhat vague in character, that were floating around in the 1920s and then were brought to life after 1933, that the German populace in general identified with, but weren't necessarily uh, Nazi party. Right, and those would also be the bridges uh, yeah. along, uh, across which non-Nazi actors, like yeah. even Social Democrats yeah. and Catholics and, and liberals, 
could find their way into the Third Reich. And let me also say, people thought the Third Reich was a new era. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just a regime that was gonna that you could outlast. They thought that most people thought that this was a a new era, like one that had been introduced by the French Revolution, mm-hmm. and that um, one had better make one's amends. You just had to deal with it. Mm-hmm. That, there it was. Um, but there were political commonalities that the Nazis shared with, with many other Germans who did not necessarily think of themselves as Nazis. One of them was the idea that um, politics should serve the community and that um, that the commonwealth should be um, higher than individual interests. And this um, had a quasi-democratic ring to it, but since there were no clear constitutional mechanisms on who would decide what is the people's interest or the communal interest or the collective interest, it could easily become authoritarian in that it clearly stated sectional interests, class interests, regional interests are bad. Um, That was clear enough, but what exactly was the communal interest? So that fuzziness led to a kind of authoritarianism. But this idea of the people's community still had strong emotional power that everyone should be the citizens should be honored for what they could do for Germany, whether they were workers, or the peasants, or they were students, had a populist edge to it. Um, and that Germany should be run, should, the German politics should serve the people, uh, not the state, not the dynasty, um, uh, but the people. Mm-hmm. So that idea of the people's community um, and the German term is Volksgemeinschaft. Mm-hmm. It's something that saturated politics throughout World War I and the 1920s, and the Nazis pick up on this uh, and, um, and are the most successful entrepreneurs of this idea. Mm-hmm. Number two, uh, the idea that uh, Germany almost um, did not survive World War I, that it was almost annihilated. This is a very melodramatic reading of the military defeat of 1918 and of the Treaty of Versailles. But nonetheless, there is a sense that there are national emergency conditions that Germany finds itself in and that the travails and the tribulations of the individual in inflation or the Great Depression um, really have everything to do with Germany's sorry international condition and that cleaning up or repairing the national condition would be the way to repair mm-hmm. uh, the individual condition. That is to say, individual prosperity was dependent on national renewal. Um, this connection with one's personal tribulations with Germany's condition after World War One is something that many, many Germans shared. And so they identified very, very strongly with the fate of the nation and saw it saw their own individual prosperity in terms of national renewal. Mm-hmm. The um, corollary from that is that in order to avoid uh, national calamities such as the military defeat of 1918, not only does Germany have to rearm itself, um, not only does it have to revitalize politics along the lines of the people's community, um, not only does it have to get rid of the clutter of democracy, which only divides the nation again and again, but it has to make sure that a variety of internal and external enemies can no longer act on Germany. 
external enemies would be France, um, then the Soviet Union and the Communist Revolution, uh, the internationalization of the workers' movement, all are seen as outside dangers. But the military defeat in World War I also identified a series of internal dangers uh, that had crippled and handicapped Germany in 1918. And more and more Germans came to see that, um, that, these, that there were external and internal enemies and that political renewal required um, being vigilant to keep these uh, enemies tamped down. And the internal enemies came to include um, Marxists, um, but also Jews, and uh, who were seen as not having Germany's interests at heart, being international, cosmopolitan. And then a kind of um, um, overly generous liberal politics, which um, kept alive weak aspects of the nation, such as so-called mentally and physically deficient people, that Germany really needed to uh, toughen itself up in all cer certain ways, uh, vigilance to the outside, vigilance against enemies on the inside, but also a program really of, of regenerating um, the national body and getting rid of, of the degenerate and, and, and the un biologically unworthy parts. Germans did not agree with this in 1918. Uh, but they came uh, to increasingly to see that that was the requirement of successful national politics when the Nazis, by the time the Nazis came to power and as the Nazis began to rule in the 1930s. So the remarkable thing about the Nazis is that they got Germans to accept the basic premises of Nazi politics by the time World War II started. Mm -hmm. That is, one, that Germany was an endangered position. Two, that if Germany didn't revitalize and renew itself, it would be gobbled up by its enemies. And three, that, to, that, that, three, that Germany needed to act preemptorily against its enemies uh, in order to avoid um, annihilation. Mm -hmm. So... Um, not all Germans agree with these premises, but in a way, um, uh, but many, many do. And in a way, um, to get to the national unity represented by 1914, the patriotic moment of national unity at the beginning of World War I, to get to 1914, politics had to solve the problems that had been thrown up by 1918, deal vigilantly and violently against internal and external enemies that had appeared in various guises in 1918, war profiteers, Bolsheviks, um, Jewish conspiracy, uh, in order to get to uh, the national unity of 1914. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I call this a um, recovered false memory. Uh, 1918 is made very melodramatic, is seen as a site of Germany's near annihilation. Not seen that way in 1918, but it's seen that way by 1938. And that will then justify the, justify the killing of Germany's enemies. Since uh, if Germany didn't kill its enemies, its enemies would kill Germany. Mm -hmm. And a surprising number of Germans accepted these premises. 
not necessarily every conclusion drawn from those premises, i.e. killing of women and children, but, um, but, but broad aspects of the Nazi worldview, this, this beleaguered view of Germany and this existential collective struggle uh, in which Germany found itself, that was accepted broadly so that even supporters, uh, excuse me, even opponents of the Nazi um, could um, celebrate certain foreign policy uh, successes of the Nazis, like the annexation of Austria, um, the first victories in, in World War One, and even in World War II in, in uh, 1939 and 1940 against Poland and France, uh, and even could see um, Germany as um, fighting for its very life against the Soviet Union and the other allies at the end of the war. Mm -hmm. So key aspects of the Nazi worldview from the people's community to um, the importance of some sort of revitalization in order to ensure even individual prosperity. And then the premises of international politics were widely accepted, even by people who um, were unsettled by many aspects of um, Nazi rule, it's authoritarian, racist features. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things that you mentioned that I, I really uh, – like, and I think that is extraordinarily insightful, is in fact this tendency to over-dramatize or to make melodramatic or um, to catastrophize, to look at um, events uh, as um, either uh, totally positive or totally negative and destructive. Um, th this is a very, I think it's a common thing in politics to work toward those extremes, but in the... Um, in the German case, it seems so much more exaggerated because the fact of the matter is, is that anybody sort of looking at Germany after World War One, it wasn't obviously in very good shape, but compared to the way it looked after World War Two, it was in very good shape, I suppose. But the, the, you know, again, this notion that somehow a nation could just disappear um, when you know there's really no historical evidence of anything like that in modern times. I guess I, I find this very, I find it very peculiar that that people would buy into this, and I think maybe it has something to do with here, I'm just sort of going on my own pet theories, that, you know, people enjoy this kind of drama. They want to be involved in something that's extraordinarily consequential. Um, I, I think that's some of the appeal of, of communism in, in the Soviet Union yeah, as well. I think the spectacle of national renewal, um, which is the solution then to um, the drama of national degeneration, mm -hmm. uh, is... is uh, is, is very appealing, and Germans bought into this melodramatic, beleaguered view of 1918 once the Nazis started to renew Germany. Mm -hmm. So it's not a traumatic memory of 1918, um, but rather it's the counterpart. It's, it's part of um, the drama of German renewal after 1933. Yeah. Uh, so I think in, in that sense, uh, you're right. Um, Germany is the big loser, and uh, in 1918, I think one also has to um, underscore the, it's not the shock, at least certainly the, the how, how drastic um, the mental apparatus of European history had changed between 1914 and 1918 with the destruction of three empires, the Russian, the Austrian, and the German um, a whole kind of way of doing politics, of thinking about um, daily and social interactions. I mean, World War I really a dramatic change, and I think everyone reports on that. 
uh, after World War One. So there is this sense that ages and epochs and empires uh, can, in fact, uh, change and disappear very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. France and England, uh, Great Britain, had, had less of this, and they are the winners, and the yep. war reaffirmed their society. Yep. Yep. And, um, and Germany's losses create this sense of loss, but also, also the conviction that there is innovation in history and that you can remake Germany and you can revitalize Germany into even something stronger. So it's really very important to stress that uh, Hitler is not a substitute for the Kaiser. Uh, The end of the empire is the premise for the very possibility of the people's community and for a better, stronger, more unified Germany that the Nazis believed they represented. So in some ways... um, the uh, the catastrophe is in fact a precondition for the renewal, and it's seen as such. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, again, I, I I just find that the phenomenon of identifying with something as being totally new, totally uh, world changing, totally epoch making to be some, it's just a fascinating thing. I mean, this may sound trivial and stupid, but uh, I remember when I was growing up in the era of punk. And I was big into punk music and was in bands and stuff like this. And, and I really thought that the world had changed. I, I mean, I really totally did. I was totally, I was like, this, nothing will ever be the same now. Music will never be the same. And, of course, it was a moment in pop music. That's what it was. Uh, but if you were to ask me in back in 1977 or 80 or something, I would have said something entirely different about that. Um, so and so Germans constantly choreographed themselves as, not only witnesses to this change, but as protagonists of it, um, 10% of all Germans owned cameras. Yeah. And um, um, well, you know, millions of people went to the uh, cinema. All of this was part of the um, reproduction, representation of a collective national life that one was actually making history and being part of history. Yeah, I was going to say, in between 1977 and 80, I think uh, uh, 50% of uh, Teenage males in the United States had guitars, so (laughs) we were all doing it. You know, it was like a new era, and we were going to do this thing, and uh, everything was going to be different. So that's quite. I I find there's something in the human heart that wants to be involved in this sort of drama and and feel as if that you you're you're part of something really epoch making. Right, and that the the whole aesthetic, the whole being part of something, um, was very important. And even um, for young people, for example, that they, they would play their own independent and sovereign role in the nation by being part of the Hitler Youth, for example, yeah. beyond the um, surveillance of their parents and of their teachers, but really have a direct role um, and uh, in, in the renewal of the state and that youth leads youth um, gave them a real sense of, of independence um, in, the, in the whole aesthetics of, of participating mm-hmm. in the drama collective yeah. life. Absolutely, and one of the, I think one of the most fascinating parts of the, the book, and I, I would love to see it excerpted in some popular place where people, lots of people could read it, but it was about the, uh, you know, and you don't really think about these things, but um, the, the, uh, the Hitler salute, uh, you know, I hadn't really ever thought about it. You know, it's as if people like right. always did it, but that, that isn't true at all. Like suddenly they began to do it. It was kind of a, I, I, don't, wanna, I don't know if it's the right word, but it's like a fad. All of a sudden everybody is doing this strange thing. Right, the more another. people who do it, the more you're not sure. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating dynamic. The more people, first of all, the salute is a violent intrusion into space because it is, uh, it, it involves the hand movement, 
you know, and, and, and occupy social space that a tip of the hat does not. Secondly, it's unambiguous. It, it, it declares your political loyalty to a particular movement um, so different than good morning or good afternoon. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's non-ambiguous. Uh, but, but no one quite knew what it meant because um, from the outside, looking in, you would see more and more people giving the Hitler salute. So it suggested that all your neighbors were sort of jumping onto the bandwagon. Yeah. And that would unsettle your own reservations and say, well, maybe I, I uh, you know, better see the positive part of this and, and join up. But from the inside, uh, insiders were never sure of the um, authenticity of the conversion. Did people do this just to pass as Nazis, just to not make trouble for themselves, or were they true believers? So the huge numbers of people who give the Hitler salute and say Heil Hitler, even at home, uh, even in private spaces, um, always remained fraught. It was, it was unclear how to uh, interpret it. Certainly more and more people did. Um, did uh, support the party and, and, and feel at home in the new Third Reich. But one was never quite clear where to draw the boundary between opportunists uh, and, um, and true believers. Yeah. There's a one exception. There are, there's one group of people who could not pass, you know, who could not pass as either opportunists or true believers, uh, and that was German Jews. And so public life becomes increasingly structured according to these very non-ambiguous public signs, like giving the salute and saying Heil Hitler, and German Jews were excluded. Whatever they, um, whatever efforts they made, they could never pass as Germans uh, now in the Third Reich, and were mm -hmm. always, even in the most everyday interactions, signaled as outsiders and as Jews. How different this was before 1933 when people would tip one's hat and say good morning. So that even somebody who didn't want their daughter to marry uh, a Jew or their son to marry a Jew uh, would still tip the hat, say good morning. You know, and, 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 and so there was a, a, a density and an ambiguity to everyday relations that um, disappears uh, very, very quickly uh, in Germany, particularly from the perspective of, uh, of German Jews. Now, you mentioned in the book that the uh, sort of popularity or use of the uh, Heil Hitler salute um, changes over the course of the regime. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Well, again, we, we, um, we don't quite know how to read it. Um, we, we, more and more people use it, and more and more people use it without thinking uh, by the time you're in the late 1930s. But some people don't. But what does that mean? If, on the one hand, there's an opportunist, you know, who's, who says Heil Hitler, um, and then sits down and plays cards and drinks beer and doesn't listen to the party speeches on the radio, although Heil Hitler would suggest that they're kind of Nazi, but their indifference to the radio programming would suggest that they're not. On the other hand, we could imagine someone of the older generation who is very habituated to saying good morning and good afternoon, polite, uh, and yet beliefs believes in the Nazis and, 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 and takes their premises seriously. So it's not just a question of mapping out who says Heil Hitler and who does not. It's also a question of figuring out what it means mm -hmm. when someone does and does not say yeah. Heil Hitler. And I personally don't think it's a particularly predictive 
signal mm-hmm. of one's um, of how one feels, and besides which, one might dislike the Nazis and still feel basically comfortable mm-hmm. in the Third Reich for, for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. One thing becomes clear: at the very end of the war, few and fewer people do say Heil Hitler, mm-hmm. uh, even at home, and it becomes one. One basically blames the Nazis for losing the war uh, and for destroying the dream. So again, you could hate the Nazis, but but mourn uh, mourn the Third Reich. Many people hated Hitler at the end of the war, but they also why did they hate him? They hated him for for many times, in many uh, uh, in many ways for for destroying uh, for destroying the dream of the Third Reich. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's an insightful point. One of the things I really liked about your book is that uh, it says something I've been saying for a long time. No, uh, the um, and that is that uh, we should really see uh, World War II, and particularly the. Uh, um, the Eastern Front is a, is a kind of a race war on a, on a tremendously grand scale that, that we, we we don't think of it this way, but we really should. And and a kind of um, precursor to that question is the degree to which, and I, and I don't know, I'm asking quite honestly, uh, the, the, to, to what extent did Germans before the mid-Nazi period think of Germanness as a racial quality? I think that's a good question. I think they increasingly came to believe it was a racial quality. Um, race, uh, ideas about race and the, sort of the naturalness of a racial identity had been around since the end of the 19th century. People thought more and more in terms of heredity and biological characteristics. Um, and uh, World War I only would have aggravated the thinking of you know, me as a German versus a French versus a Russian. So war seemed to make more plausible and mm-hmm. make more legitimate um, these absolute racial uh, differences. I think the entitlements that came with being an Aryan, the effort it made to document the fact that you were an Aryan, you had to do that yourself, show who your four grandparents were, um, the differences in how Jews were treated and non-Jews were treated in Germany, all um, made Germans increasingly um, used to thinking of themselves as, as a racial, as racial, as part of a racial collective, and even as part of a superior racial collective. Um, and that is uh, an important precondition for waging a race war. Now, most Germans probably did not, would not have voted to um, enter into an existential battle with the yeah. Soviet <laughs> Union. Uh, at the cost of millions of lives, and um, and most Germans, even if it had been uh, without much cost, probably would not have been interested in settling into the vast vistas of uh, European Russia or even of Poland, for that matter. Um, but what the Nazis did was wage a race war. Uh, that was the whole point. It's not about the Polish corridor. It's not about Danzig. It's mm-hmm. not about overturning Versailles. Is about becoming an, a continental power on par with the British Empire or with America in order to survive the future, in order to ensure um, that Germany would become a great power and be a great power in the coming economic and political struggles of the 20th and the 21st century. Germany was going to do that. It needed land, of the Nazis believed. Uh, it needed colonial space. It needed resources needed uh, raw materials and commodities. And that, Hitler said, 
was Russia. He looked at the map of Europe pointing to Russia, and he said, that is our Africa. Mm-hmm. And the race war was fought in, in three dimensions. One was the extermination of the Jews uh, in those areas because no German space could be contaminated by Jews, to the enslavement uh, of um, the Slavs, the Russians and the Poles, at least those who would have survived the de-urbanization efforts of the Germans and the uh, famines that they would uh, allow to come to pass. Um, as an uneducated workforce, slave workforce, these are the very terms that are used just 60, 70 years ago in the documents. And three, the reconstitution of German blood um, by repatriating German immigrants who were beyond the German Empire, those that were in Romania, say, or in Russia proper, uh, and finding lost German blood. Um, the German racial authorities would trawl Polish and Ukrainian populations who did not think of themselves as German um, in order to f- retrieve lost German blood. Um, whether or not the person thought of themselves as German or not. Um, so there's this vast racial reclamation project on the one hand uh, to, to you know build the numbers, build up the numbers of Germans um, over the course of the coming generations, uh, and then the destruction of the Germans' racial enemies, uh, the Slavs and the Jews. And this was a huge program, and we only see the beginnings of it. Um, we see it already in Poland in 1939. Uh, and then we see it uh, again with the invasion of Russia in 1941. And one aspect of the program was more or less successful, and that was um, the extermination of European Jewry. Mm-hmm. Most European Jews were murdered, um, and certainly most in German-occupied Europe. Mm-hmm. And how did... Um I, I wanted to use the phrase ordinary Germans, but I'm not going to. How did people who were not... Um, members of the Nazi party, Germans who were not members of the Nazi party, but had a kind of, as you say, um, affinity for the program. How did they react when uh, they became aware of the uh, broad range of extreme measures that were being used against um, German Jews, Jews in the Eastern territories, but also against um, Slavs who they saw at, you know, basically at their doorstep, um, um, performing slave labor. What, what did they think about these things? How, what category did they put this into? I mean, it's a very interesting question. Where every, from the perspective of the victims, uh, from the perspective of Poles, and we have diaries and letters, uh, as well as of European Jews, again, diaries and letters, uh, the Germans come and sweep in as an absolutely demonic force. And um, there are a few Germans who uh, don't behave as racial superiors with an extraordinary arrogance and violence from day one, which once successfully practiced on day one, becomes more and more extreme as the days and weeks pass. So wherever you are, you see the enslavement of people, the brutal and arbitrary treatment of people on the basis of their racial identities by Germans. Uh, already in Poland in 1939, and, you, uh, and certainly in Russia in 1941, you have ordinary soldiers taking photographs. You see the uh, cameras hanging around the necks. You see the, the laughing uh, German soldiers at the sight of executions and humiliations. 
And yet, um, you also, when you read the testimony of Germans, there is a degree of shock at what's happening and um, an attempt to comprehend it. I believe that the news of mass killings of Jews, for example, in Russia, in the Soviet Union, in the summer and fall of 1941, spread like wildfire throughout Germany. Most mm -hmm. people knew about it. Um, these were rumors. These were um, news that came through letters. Um, sometimes people came home um, from the front. Um, and I think this news spread like wildfire. But how was it understood? Um, I think for the most part, it was understood as this is, this is how war is fought. This is how war is fought in the 20th century. Um, which means that in a way to justify what's happening, one also accepts the idea that this is what would have happened to us, us Germans, mm -hmm. had we not preemptively invaded. Um, so people try on a variety of justifications. They certainly did not think of it as a, I, I don't think most Germans thought of it as a comprehensive policy that was happening everywhere. They thought of it as, probably as atrocity. Um, which meant that they knew bad things were happening, but they didn't think that that was the point of the war. Um, and yet at the same time, they're justifying the atrocities in, in, in a larger uh, historical drama between Germany um, and, its, and its enemies. So you, so you have both things happening. You have shock, you have justification, um, uh, and you have even fear of retribution mm -hmm. already in 1941. Mm -hmm. what will happen if we don't win the war, mm -hmm. um, what will happen to us. So there are a variety of registers, all of which affirm to us the Germans knew about mass murder, even if they didn't understand it necessarily as a comprehensive process of total um, extermination. But these different registers, because they're different ones, they don't allow us to, to make absolutely authoritative statements about how most Germans felt about X, Y, or Z. I mean, they certainly disliked Poles and they disliked Jews, but I think most Germans were not for the extermination of Jews. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yet, in, yet when they find, yet they, they pass on anti-Semitic caricatures so that the, uh, there's a firm belief in Germany that the bombing is, the bombing of German cities is a act of a vengeance for how the Germans treated the Jews. So now it's become very interesting if you unpack this. This is 1942, 1943. Okay, we're being bombed because of what we did for the against the Jews. It does recognize such a statement that we did something wrong and we did something bad. Mm -hmm. But it also suggests that the Jews are this superpower mm -hmm. that can act uh, and and um, and deal uh, beat out the violence that the Germans perpetrated on the Jews onto the Germans themselves. Mm -hmm. So inside this recognition of German criminal behavior is also a, a vulgar anti-Semitic stereotype of, of the super-powerful Jew. Mm -hmm. This Also this equivalence that the, the Jews have taken vengeance on the Germans for what the Germans did to the Jews uh, will, after the war, become a kind of uh, moral balance sheet. That is to say, we did bad things to the Jews and the Jews things did bad things to us, and so now the score is even. So although there's a recognition that there was something bad done to the Jews, there's also a, a sense of um, 
uh, forgiveness that the Germans enact for themselves. So it gets it's very complicated. A, a single sentence yeah. you know, works both ways. And that's why um, the argument is not whether most Germans are Nazis, whether the glass is half full, whether the glass is half empty, but how Germans, what are the words and the premises that Germans use to explain what is what is happening? Um, do they feel that they have to try to become Nazis? Do they feel that they have to um, look at the positive parts of the regime? Do they feel that this is a new era or just a passing regime? Um, so you really have to look at how Germans uh, think about and wrote down um, what they thought was happening. Mm -hmm. And, you and that's why I use diaries and letters so extensively. These are the contemporary words and thoughts of Germans. Yeah, I was going to say you do a terrific job of it. Um, let, me, let me ask a couple of historiographical questions. One uh, that I was particularly fascinated by, one, um, I, I guess it occupies just a couple of sentences in the book, is, and I didn't know this, is that, uh, I, I guess, I'm sorry, there's so much throat clearing for this question, the, that the Holocaust itself didn't occupy a kind of central place in our understanding of the Second World War or the Third Reich until about 30 years ago. That yeah. Prior to that, there were other stories told, and, and the, the Holocaust was not central. And it's, I think we would agree that it's completely central now to our understanding. I mean, they, they really, it is, this is the thing that we talk about when we talk about the Second World War in Europe is the Holocaust. So how, how was it that, it was a, that, that some other story was told, and what other story was that, and how was it avoided? Well, I, I'm not sure it was total avoidance. Um, for example, many Jewish survivors after 1945, they would have been mostly from Slovakia and um, Hungary um, who were uh, imprisoned um, and put into concentration camps in the uh, summer and fall of 1944, but also from other European countries, did not want to... Um, rebrand themselves as specifically and distinctively Jewish. They all believed that they, like so many other Europeans, had, uh, had um, suffered under the Third Reich, had survived, and wanted to be part of the same anti-fascist narrative. So it's not only, mm -hmm. it's not just a question of avoidance. It was, it was in a way, the, 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 um, the pull of the Allied victory over the fascists um, that set that that was really the terms in which so much of post-World War II uh, uh, intellectual history was considered, that, um, that there, was, there was not always so much room or desire for thinking about a specifically uh, Jewish Shoah. But there are other reasons as well. First of all, um, most of the deaths that occurred in the Holocaust, the Sixth Night, occurred before Stalingrad. 80% of the Holocaust had already taken place. So there's two and a half years before the uh, defeat of the Nazis. And um, the Germans, in a way, shifted gears from uh, a race war against the Jews to a war of, of, of um, a defensive war of survival uh, against the Allies. And um, particularly in the last year of the war from Normandy on, this is a very conventional war, or it's seen as a conventional war. Paris liberated, Warsaw is liberated, the Russians move, the Americans move, the Third Reich becomes smaller and smaller. Uh, and this conventional military engagement in which the names of the generals are all well known to us, over 
erodes um, what had been there before Stalingrad, before the spring of 1943, certainly, um, which was a race war. And it took a long time before um, the dominant images of the one, Normandy, Warsaw, Paris falling, um, uh, were uh, replaced or sub sub uh, supplemented by uh, Auschwitz and, uh, and, and the camps. In fact, the, the Americans were, were genuinely surprised mm -hmm. by what they saw when they um, were in Buchenwald and Bergen-Belsen and Mauthausen and, and Dachau. Uh, there was not a lot of preparation um, for these traces of, of, uh, the racial, mm -hmm. of the racial war. So I think partially it was, it's a function of the success in the way of the anti-Jewish um, policies of the Nazis and the conventionality and high drama of the military engagement um, at, at the very end, as well as the desire of all victims not to rebrand themselves yeah. under Nazi terms. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, yeah, I find that fascinating. And someone should write the history of that historiography. The, uh, maybe somebody has. The, 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 let me ask this question, um, and it is a little bit, uh, it might be hard for you to answer, but um, I think it's important to address it. And, and it is this. So uh, if I understand correctly, then you are saying that there were German attitudes that were broadly held prior to the Nazis that were consistent with Nazi policies, though not identical with them, that, right. that these, these, these notions were sort of deeply rooted in the post-1917 experience. The Nazis, I don't know, take advantage is the right word for them, but they rode them to, to something. And, and then... Um, they expressed them most successfully. Yes. I would say the Nazis were both, um, you know, were genuinely anti Bolshevik and anti-communist, but they also had a real populist edge. Uh, they were different from the other conservative parties. Um, they talked about the people's community, um, were much less interested in the old um, aspects of the German state, the Prussians, the Hohenzollerns, the dynasties, the Kaiser. Uh, so they appeared as a fresh, dynamic force. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if, if it's the case that these... Um, values and ideas are deeply rooted, uh, more deeply than the Nazis. Um, what happened to them after the Nazis left that, in 1945? It's, it's an absolutely great question, exactly. I mean, those people who talk about the glass being half empty, that is to say the Germans um, were disposed to this and that aspect of the Nazis, especially when the Nazis said the same thing as all German nationalists or even liberals against the Treaty of Versailles. Okay, so then there's overlap, but it wasn't really deeply rooted, as you say. Then it's easier to imagine the democratization of Germany after 1945. Mm -hmm. but on the other hand, you argue, like me, that glass is sooner half full, that we have to... Uh, there were many Germans who disliked and opposed the Nazis, but what we really, what's really amazing is how many um, joined up and self-mobilized themselves, um, mimicked and the vocabulary and the choreography. Um, and that not only that, but that uh, there was a kind of affection for the Third Reich or for small n, small s national socialism that went beyond the particulars of the Nazi party. Mm -hmm. Right. How do we understand democracy uh, in 1945? Exactly. And I, and I have three answers to that. One is I don't know. That is to say, <laughs> I've, you know, that it would be then, okay, that, you know, I pushed it. <laughs> 
push the whole question this way, that really then needs now to be confronted. And that was the same question that Goldhagen also unsuccessfully answered. Number two, I would answer that the vast destruction of World War II, uh, 10 to 11 million Wehrmacht soldiers out of 18 million mobilized, uh, every family hit, um, most Germans on the road at some point during the war, uh, losing their home or having to move, uh, hit home in the way that World War I simply mm -hmm. had not. And that World War II was experienced as World War I was still remembered. And two world wars was enough. The mass of death is extraordinary. Obviously, the Germans suffered less proportionally than, than other people. But nonetheless, as far as the Germans were concerned, 1945 is a very violent moment. Indeed, half of all Wehrmacht deaths, more than half, occur in the last 10 months of the war. Mm -hmm. uh, more than half of all air bombing victims uh, die in the last. Ten months of the war. So the uh, density uh, of the violence in 44-45 is absolutely extraordinary. And I think they, they were bombed out of their nationalist convictions. And if you look at how Germans remembered their fate after 1918, melodramatic, national, highly politicized, versus after 1945, tendentious, sentimental, linked to high mark, but not very nationalized. Um, there's a big difference, and um, and uh, I think I think just the sheer violence has a uh, has has a genuine explanatory mm -hmm. value. Third, Germans uh, perpetrators never always had to struggle to come to terms with what they were doing. To adhere to the new Nazi morality did not always come easily. Uh, to kill women and children, to take the most extreme example, is something people discuss, anguished over, and uh, but it's not only been this extreme example, it's in many others. They struggled to become Nazis, precisely because they struggled with Nazi precepts and Nazi premises. They became Nazis deliberately, consciously. They knew what they were doing. But it was a struggle, and a struggle involved resuscitating, if then putting aside, conventional Judeo-Christian morality. So that the entire history, I, I would say this hypothesis of mine rather than a conviction, the entire history of how Germans dealt with Nazism in the years 1933-45 is shadowed by a secondary movement of asking, is this really right? Isn't this wrong? That is to say, the traces of an older non-Nazi morality uh, were always there. And these are the breadcrumbs by which people could walk back mm -hmm. out of the Nazi mm -hmm. valley mm -hmm. after 1945. They remembered their struggles, and then they took the light side, which was obviously the smaller side, glommed onto that, and, um, and reconstituted their identities because they remembered having misgivings and reservation. Mm -hmm. And I think that was that was another dynamic, is that precisely because not because precisely becoming Nazi was a struggle meant that one one ultimately was a better Nazi for many years. But um, because it was a struggle it also left traces of of tension and of, of an older morality that could be retrieved. Mm -hmm. Were there um this is a I should, I, 
I guess I have to ask because I, I don't know. Uh, were there arguments about uh, initial? I mean, right after the war in the first year or two, were there were there arguments about um, the, the validity and and purposefulness and utility of of these sort of deep national socialists with small n and small s principles, or just wasn't well, a lot, it talked about? A lot of people thought that if Hitler hadn't, um, the German expression was, you know, if you if you if you know, if you, you create enemies on all sides, you're going to lose. You know, at a certain point, the hunter has to have a kind of a modesty. That um, 1941, Hitler had gone over the top. Um, that, that would have been things that families would have discussed in 45, 46. That is to say, um, Hitler went too far. He shouldn't have created a world of enemies against him. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that the basic ideas of national socialism were good. Mm-hmm. But in the ensuing 60 or 70 years, I think that Germany and a variety of generations, three that have succeeded uh, one another, has gone much further in, in, in really critically thinking about uh, the complicity. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, I think in the initial years, many people still thought that Nazism was, was basically a, a good idea. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, nonetheless, I mean, there is was always a relationship made between the the destruction that Germany found itself in, the fact that Hitler had started the war, and 1930. Yeah, yeah. No. And 1933, even then, and the discussions were: Does Hitler mean war? This was discussed in 1933. So, the people had a um, you know a baggage, a set of tools by which they could begin to critically unpack their own allegiances and loyalties uh, mm-hmm. to the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say, Peter, thank you. We have taken up a lot of your time. Uh, it's been a fascinating discussion. I could go on like this for uh, another hour. I I'm probably would wear well, you out, you, I suppose. The, so let me um, uh, close by asking you our traditional final question here on New Books in History, and that is, um, what are you working on now? Well, I have uh, found a diary that um, was written by an ordinary Berliner, who lives in the same apartment all his life. His name is Franz Goh. And he's a typesetter. He works in a print shop. He works in a publishing company. Uh, in that sense, he's kind of ordinary German. He's born in 1899, begins his diary in 1916, and continues the diary for the rest of his life until 1984. So you have almost 70 years of diaries uh, from World War I across World War II, Cold War, um, it goes from Kaiser Wilhelm II to Ronald Reagan. Uh, it goes from, you know, the Freikorps and the revolution of 1918 to hippie. Um, <laughs> he, he also writes about science, um, about the natural world. Um, he has an accounting book, so I know what purchases he makes in the mm-hmm. 1920s. He's an avid reader. Um, he has girlfriends, though he never uh, marries. So on a variety of levels, um, I'm really tracking... Uh, this 20th century life and mm-hmm. the fact that he wrote it down and I call him sort of a graphomaniac. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the book is entitled 20th Century Life because it's not just a 20th century life but it also um, uh, embodies it. so many typical 20th century activities such as uh, reading and accounting and diary keeping and, and observation of the world around. Mm-hmm. So it's a book about the diary and the diarist. Uh, that sounds like an absolutely fascinating source and topic. I envy you very much. <laughs> if you find any more diaries, call me. 
I, will. <laughs> I would love to have such a source to work on. But anyway, I should well, tell Well, it's uh, serendipity, but it, yeah, it's a fabulous. That's great. Fabulous no, it sounds like a great source. So I should tell our listeners we've been talking to Peter Frischio about um, his terrific new book, uh, Life and Death in the Third Reich. Peter, thank you very much for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Okay, my pleasure. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Peter Frischia about his new book, Life and Death in the Third Reich. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. Thank you.